0: KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, shaping the next generation of data-driven problem solvers. Learn more about the online Master of Data Science program from UC San Diego at omds.ucsd.edu.
1: A new accounting of the children impacted by family separation.
0: We have gotten some reunified, some still remain to be reunified, but we won't stop till we find every last child.
1: I'm Andrew Bowen with Jade Hindman. Maureen Cavanaugh is off. This is KPBS Midday Edition. The San Diego Police Department is out with new guidelines on how to interact with trans people.
2: Um, We want to make sure that all of our police officers are respecting our communities at all times.
1: And fights over water rates are escalating in North County. Two local water districts are trying to break free. Plus, should cancel culture be canceled? That's ahead on KPBS Midday Edition.
3: A five-year-old child was left alone this morning along the border wall near San Ysidro. That's according to U.S. Customs and Border Patrol agents who took the child, identified as a Guatemalan national, to a border patrol facility. While children continue to come to the U.S. without their parents, the Biden administration today announced it has accounted for 3,900 children separated as part of the Trump administration's zero-tolerance policy on illegal crossings. LegalEarn, who is deputy director of Of the aclu's immigrants rights project is the lead attorney in the ongoing lawsuit to reunite these children with their families he joins me now with more lee welcome
0: thanks for having me
3: there's a discrepancy with the count of children the biden administration says they're accounting for versus the original count of children the aclu identified in a prior lawsuit what's the reason for this discrepancy
0: well so the reason is because the government has excluded for the time being parents who they believe may have criminal histories. And so we have noted, and I don't think the government disputes this, that there were more than 5,500 children separated and probably more we'll ultimately find out. But the government has said at least 3,900 are clearly fall within what they want to do with the settlement. And they are looking at the other 1,700. We hope that they will conclude that those 1,700 do not have the type of crimes that would prohibit them from engaging in this settlement. We don't think we have looked at that. And we think that exclusion of the 1700 is wrong. We hope the government will ultimately reach that same conclusion. And we're in negotiations with them about that. But that's the discrepancy.
3: Of the overall number of children the Biden administration has identified, how many have actually been reunited with their families or to a legal guardian?
0: So, since the Biden administration took over, only four families have been reunited, maybe five at this point, as we're talking. We're hopeful that about three dozen more will be reunited in the next few weeks. But there's still a lot to go. And so, you know, ultimately, it's good the task force is up and running. The process seems to be up and running after a lot of negotiations with us, but there's a lot of work to be done. We believe between 1,000 and 2,000 families need to come back. But beyond that, there are families who are already reunited that need help, they need mental health services. They need other types of social services. Most importantly, they need legal permanent status so they don't have to live in fear of being sent back to danger. They've already suffered enough trauma, and our country owes them this at this point. And The president United States came out and said this is an historic, an historic moral stain on the United States. Given that, I think we need to do everything possible to try and make these families whole to the extent that's possible.
3: You know, today's news also includes information about where the children are coming from, mostly Guatemala. Uh, Just this week, the vice president was in Guatemala with a message to migrants not to come to the U.S. What needs to be done in Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador and elsewhere that would stem the flow of migrants coming to the U.S.?
0: Well, I think we always want to get at the root causes because people do not want to have to pick up and leave their home countries notwithstanding what the narrative may be in some circles, people want to stay at home. They want to drag their kids thousands of miles to a foreign country and have to start their lives all over away from their families. But I think what's critical to understand about what the vice president's saying in Guatemala is that's the wrong message to be sending because you have to say to people, if you're in danger now, our border is open. And so, while we ultimately want the long term solution of trying to get at the root cause in those countries, the immediate problem is that the Biden administration has retained a Trump administration policy of closing the border to families who are in desperate need of safety. We cannot, with this country, be out there saying, even if you're in danger, don't come. I mean, you note that the vice president didn't say, if you're in danger, come, but otherwise, You need to wait till there may be a process for you. We need to be saying the border is open to asylum seekers. I mean, if the Biden administration continues to close the border to asylum seekers, we're talking about our sea change in American history. We have said after World War II, we would never close our borders to people fleeing danger. Trump administration did that. And now the Biden administration has retained that. So I would have hoped the vice president would have said, right now, if you're in danger, you can come and get asylum. But unfortunately, that's not the case. And the vice president's out there saying nobody should come.
3: You know, there are still nearly 400 children whose families have not been found. What can you tell us about where those children are now and how they're doing?
0: The ACLU and a steering committee we created have been looking for the separated families for years. We are down to the last 391. We're hoping we make more progress. The children are almost all in the US, we believe. About two thirds of those parents are abroad, maybe a third are in the United States. We're confident we will ultimately find those families. We're hoping the Biden administration gives us more data. And with COVID receding in various places, we're hoping more on the ground searches can occur. And we won't stop till we find those last 391. We have found hundreds and hundreds of families and we have gotten some reunified, some still remain to be reunified, but we won't stop till we find every last child.
3: As I mentioned just this morning, a five-year-old was found along the border wall near San Ysidro and more unaccompanied children are being seen in other states. Why are we seeing such an increase in cases where children are being found wandering completely on their own?
0: The Biden administration has exempted unaccompanied minors from the Trump administration's policy of what's called the Title 42 policy of not allowing them in. But the Biden administration has retained the policy with respect to families. So families are now making that agonizing choice of. Do I keep my child with me here in danger or do I make this horrible decision to send my child alone because at least my child will be safe? So it's sort of this forced self-separation where children are coming by themselves. And beyond that, I think it's there's been a backlog because the Trump administration would not allow children fleeing danger in for so long will ultimately get through that backlog. But in the meantime, the Biden administration needs to immediately repeal the Title 42 policy because families are in real danger in Mexico and we are not letting them in. We are not even giving them a hearing. They get no asylum hearing whatsoever. We are just saying to families, even with small children, it doesn't matter how much danger you fled, you cannot have an asylum hearing. That has to stop.
3: I've been speaking with Lee Galernt, the deputy director of the ACLU's Immigrants' Rights Project. Lee, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thanks for having me and for shining a light on this issue.
1: June is Pride Month across the country, and the San Diego Police Department has chosen this month to unveil a new list of procedures for its interactions with transgender and non-binary individuals. The guidelines range from making sure police use the proper pronouns in addressing members of the public to ensuring that transgender individuals have access to their medications while in police custody. Joining me is the San Diego Police Department's LGBTQ Liaison Officer, Christine Garcia. Officer Garcia, welcome to the program.
2: Thank you for having me. I really appreciate being here.
1: I mentioned a couple of the highlights in that intro of this new department policy. What are some other changes that you think are especially important?
2: Yeah, so there's lots of changes that are addressed in this policy and procedure. One thing uh, that was important that you mentioned was um, how to address the community. So it uh, is a combination with training that we're conducting within the San Diego Police Department. Um, Our San Diego police officers have all received LGBTQ training since 1986. However, we saw that there was a need to give some update training, right? So the training that occurred in 1986 is going to be different than the what's required and needed nowadays. So we have all of our officers, uh, including officers from around the county who are attending um, what's called advanced officer training. It's AOT for short. And that is mandatory training that each officer has to go through every two years. And this AOT cycle, we have decided to add in three hours of LGBT update training. And along with that training came the policy and procedure, and that is how to address uh, the LGBT community, specifically the transgender and gender non-binary community, because you know, within society, sometimes non-binary can be such a relatively new thing that people don't really know what the pronouns are for it. So it addresses the pronoun usage for our non-binary community, our transgender community. Um, spells out to the officers how they should be treating and respecting our community, as well as strictly prohibits some prima facie evidence that uh, some of the community was concerned about, such as using somebody's transgender status to believe that they're involved in sex work. So that was added in there. So that way we can make sure that no officers are doing that. And then all the way to pat-down, searches, booking of a transgender individual, including uh, filling out the police report, making sure that that continuity of treatment is carried through, even through to the police report. So that way anybody who picks up the police report, a detective, a district attorney, a defense attorney, anybody can pick up that report and continue using the proper pronouns with that individual.
1: I'm glad you mentioned the pat-downs and, um, and some of the other guidelines, because some of them I found rather surprising. Uh, one of these says officers cannot conduct a search or pat down solely for the purpose of determining a person's anatomical sex. And some, uh, another, as you mentioned, says, you know, gender expression cannot be used as evidence that this person is engaged in prostitution. Were these actual problems? And is that why STPD decided to write them down in an official policy?
2: Well, I had not seen that the sex work portion was an actual problem within the San Diego Police Department. However, there is a number of the community that does believe that that problem exists within the San Diego Police Department and that um, anecdotal data presented to them um, through individual lived experiences, they felt that that was occurring. So we went ahead and added it into our policy and procedure to make sure that if that is occurring, um, that can be strictly prohibited and dealt with. As far as the pat-downs, and searches of an individual who's transgender, that pat-down or search will be conducted in accordance with that person's gender identity, not their genitalia. In fact, most of the policy prohibits the officer from even asking questions about their genitalia anymore. So I'll give you a little background. The San Diego County Sheriff's Department is responsible for Housing of transgender individuals when they are booked into jail. Um, in October of 2019, the San Diego County Sheriff's Department changed its procedure in housing according to gender identity instead of sex. Um, because that's what used to happen for a very long time. We have since updated our policy and procedure to make sure that we are not only recognizing that person's I- gender identity, but bringing them to the facility which corresponds with their gender identity. So no more do we have to ask the genitalia question and bring that person to a facility which matches their sex and if we don't know about their gender, um, there's no reason to conduct pat-downs or searches uh, to confirm any type of gender because gender and sex are two completely different aspects to who somebody is. And that also goes along with part of our training, right, which is the difference between sex, gender orientation, and also expression, uh, how you put that together and express
1: yourself. Trans and non-binary folks can be witnesses to crimes, uh, they can be suspects, and of course they can be victims. And I should explain for our listeners, for anyone who's not familiar with the term non-binary refers to people who identify as neither male nor female. What is the goal of putting these guidelines into official policy?
2: You know, I, I'll, I'll be quite honest with you. I, I do take the policy a little personal. And the reason why is because I am I myself am a transgender um, woman. I came out as transgender in 2015 and um, transitioned on the department after working on the department for eight years as male. Law enforcement is something that I've always enjoyed and loved. And having a family within law enforcement and a family within the LGBT community, I want to make sure that our officers, my other siblings are respecting my, my other siblings on the other side, right? So I want to make sure that that our law enforcement is treating our communities with dignity and respect. And it's not just the LGBT community, but it's all communities. Um, our people of color, our LGBT community, doesn't matter what your religious background is or, um, or identity. Um, we want to make sure that all of our police officers are respecting our communities at all times. And there's a different aspect to the transgender and gender non-binary community, right? It's not so cut and dry. And we knew that a procedure in helping the officers conduct those interactions respectfully and then also a procedure to hold officers accountable for when those procedures are violated. Um, We recognize the need for that and then training to go along with it.
1: How were these new guidelines developed?
2: So we have what's called a chief's advisory board, um, and it's the community stakeholders uh, within the LGBT community that come and meet with our chief uh, bi yearly. And they discuss some of the issues that are going on within the community. Um, They brought forth the idea of having these policy and procedures actually back in 2014, um, where then Lieutenant Dan Meyer was uh, the LGBT liaison before I even came out as transgender. And he actually developed a, a list of procedures for interactions with the transgender community. And that was released on a training bulletin back in 2014. So we had current standing policy and procedure, but when we reviewed it as the advisory board, we saw that it was uh, slightly outdated. Things have kind of changed within the community. And so what we did was we added the language for non-binary in, in there, and then also um, just brought some of the terminology up to today's standard. And then we also changed it into a, a full-fledged procedure instead of a training bulletin. Um, so that way it's it's permanently on file. Um, it can never expire, and it's, it's there for the officers
1: viewing. Where would you say San Diego falls in the speed or willingness to adopt these guidelines? Have other departments come and done this well before us? Are we on the cutting edge?
2: Well, um, I'm not really too sure which department developed their own procedures first, but I know that the city of San Francisco Police Department has had a set of policy and procedures for the last decade or so. Um, And there's also been other police departments along the last few years that have slowly been adopting um, new policy and procedures with the interaction of the transgender community. You know, I'll be quite honest, we're we're a little late in the game getting it out there. But uh, the great thing about it is 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 we have it out there. It's now been published. It was uh, we we wanted it done as quick as possible. I saw through to its success um, into getting published. So we're doing really good with the training and the policy procedure that we've implemented.
1: I've been speaking with Christine Garcia. LGBTQ Liaison Officer for the San Diego Police Department. And Officer Garcia, thank you.
2: Thank you very much for having me.
0: KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org.
1: You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Andrew Bowen with Jade Hindman. Maureen Kavanaugh has the day off. The move to close a North County group home for foster children has put a spotlight on foster care in San Diego County. KPBS reporter Tanya Thorne has a look at how the system is changing, especially after COVID-19. In
4: 2015, the Assembly passed a bill to eliminate most group homes for foster youth. The ultimate goal was to maintain a stable, permanent family for foster children. Congregate care, the use of group homes, was to be limited to short-term interventions. That's something Teresa Stivers says her organization did decades ago. When we see the, the youth who enter our program at 18 from a group
5: home, the majority of them don't have a GED. They have no life skills whatsoever. They don't know how to live independently or even out in the community. They've been told
4: what to do every day, every minute of their lives. Stivers is the CEO of Walden Family Services. She says when her foster care agency was established in 1976, they only worked with group homes. So we changed very quickly
5: um, to move into foster care in a family situation. Because if we don't teach these children to learn how to live in a family situation when they're young, when are they going to learn? It's going to be much more beneficial to them as they
4: get older. Rajaghani was born into the foster care system and spent his childhood living in different places.
6: In between seven to 11, I went through probably, um, I want to say around nine or 10 different foster homes and probably maybe four or five different schools. I'd been in a couple different group homes by that time.
4: Ganey says that through his experience, he preferred the family setting over the group home.
6: Just the environment—it was more so, just kind of like summer camp, extended summer camp, and you know that's fun for a kid, but for my education, it really suffered. Um, I had challenges when I was moving back to f- certain foster homes. I was moving to new f- new schools, um, so obviously, if you're somewhere for an extended period of time, once you get back to your regular um, routine. It's a challenge
4: at 11 years old gamey found stability when he got referred to Walden Family Services
6: They really supported you know me and making sure that I was stable and then also when it came time for me to transition out of foster care which was a challenge um, Walden really stepped up and tried to find as many resources and opportunities to help me and other kids get out.
4: Ganey is now on the board for Walden Family Services, has a family of his own, and has stayed in touch with his mentor for 26 years. Walden offers a treatment team that helps individualize what each case needs, work that didn't stop because of the pandemic.
5: We continued to place children during the pandemic. We placed children who had COVID, and our nurse came up with a plan. The families agreed to quarantine. So we worked nonstop as essential workers. It didn't stop for us just because of the pandemic.
4: Stiver says she expects the entire child welfare system will be busier than ever this next year due to the aftermath of the pandemic. Well, we're very concerned. Um, You know, children
5: are being seen for the first time in over 12 months. They're being seen by all the mandated reporters, whether they're in the doctor's offices, they're in sports, they're in the schools. So a huge number of children are entering into the foster care system due to all of the stress and abuse and neglect
4: that's happened during the pandemic. Another stressor for the system is the expansion of foster care to youths aged 18 to 21. Stiver says more resources, donations and foster families are always needed. Tanya Thorne, KPBS News.
1: San Diego County is in a drought, so it should be no surprise that water is getting more expensive. So expensive, in fact, that two small water districts in North County say they can get it cheaper by breaking away from their parent agency. The Rainbow Municipal Water District and Fallbrook Public Utility District want to exit the San Diego County Water Authority and join another water district based in Riverside County. Joining me to explain what that means is KPBS North County multimedia producer, Alex Nguyen. Alex, welcome. Thank you, Andrew. So these two water districts say that water is just too expensive in San Diego County. What makes them think they can get it for less money by joining a different agency? So they want to join a Riverside agency called the Eastern Municipal Water District.
7: Tom Kennedy with the Rainbow Municipal Water District says the difference between Eastern Municipal and the San Diego County Water Authority is about $600 per acre foot. And the reason why other agencies may be cheaper for right now, according to Water Authority, is because they have not made the same improvement on water reliability. And they are also in the process of making those same improvements, so the difference in cost over time may be negligible.
1: Explain a bit more about how these water agencies are structured. It seems like there are just multiple layers of government that are stacked on top of each other. These are two local water districts. What's the difference between those water districts and then this larger agency, the San Diego County Water Authority?
7: Well, the San Diego County Water
1: Authority is a wholesaler. They
7: buy water from other sources such as the Colorado River or water from up north and then sell it to uh, water districts within the county. For example, Rainbow and Fallbrook and also the city of San Diego. And there are about 24
1: water districts within the county of San Diego. So we know that agriculture is the top water user in these two smaller districts, Fallbrook and Rainbow. Uh, You spoke with an avocado farmer in North County for this reporting. What are his thoughts on this proposal of breaking away from the San Diego County Water Authority? Well, this particular farmer
7: that I talked to was a bit ambivalent about it. He says a reduction in rates would be great, but not if it costs more with the associated fees, such as the exit fees, the... uh, The fees that the San Diego County Water Authority is asking Rainbow and Fallbrook to pay for, for all the improvements they've made on their behalf. So that's kind of where the tricky issue is. And I get that a sense. That's what a lot of farmers in that area is kind of feeling as well. Yeah, they would love to have reduced costs, but is worried what this might mean if uh, there's going to be a protracted fight within the
1: water authority and these two smaller agencies. So these, explain a bit more about what these exit fees are actually paying for. The County Water Authority has been making improvements to water infrastructure, uh, and they've signed these long-term contracts. So why would it be that these smaller districts, when they leave, have to pay a fee to to make up for those costs? Well, because they say that they've made this on behalf of everyone.
7: When they enter into these obligations, they enter it on behalf of all 24 agencies, and all 24 agencies Uh, voted on it. Of course, not everybody voted for it, but the majority did, so therefore it's a shared cost across the region. And that's the reason why they wanted to make sure that Rainbow and Fallbrook pay for it. That does not necessarily mean if the detachment process is approved uh, that uh, Rainbow and Fallbrook will have to pay for it. It is up to the uh, local agency that is determining whether they can detach or not. To, dis- to determine whether they need to pay or not. But the water authority is arguing that this is good for the whole entire region. We made this for everybody. And if they leave,
1: that means everyone else has to pick up the tab and it's not fair for everyone else. Part of the disagreement here just seems to be about cross-subsidization. So the idea that these North County water customers are paying for infrastructure that is elsewhere in the county and that they might not be actually benefiting from. Is that right? Yeah, so Rainbow and Fallbrook says it's not fair that you know, all
7: these improvements are happening down south, which is benefiting the people down south and not the customers in the north. The Water Authority is counter-arguing since, yeah, these uh, improvements such as the uh, desalination plant in Carlsbad and the raising of the San Vicente Dam is down south, but it also helps the people up north because during drought years, such as the one here, they can pull from those sources for the people down south, freeing up the waters that is imported from the north for the people in the north. So it balances out the system. So
1: no one system is getting taxed. So either way, it helps the people in the north as well as the south. What will it take for these two water districts to formally break free from the county water authority and join a different agency? It is in the hands of what's known as the
7: Local Agency Formation Commission, and they are a mediator when the two when different public agencies have disagreements, and they kind of settle this dispute. So right now, what they're doing is they're looking at the issues, and they can weigh it, and they can make the decision. And that decision isn't expected until you know the end of this year, around fall or so. After that, it's just not a done deal. Voters will then get to decide. And the San Diego County Water Authority wants the whole entire county to vote on this, while the Fallbrook and uh,
1: Rainbow just want their customers to vote on it. And that this issue is also being decided by LAFCO. I've been speaking with KPBS North County multimedia producer Alex Nguyen. Alex, thanks for your reporting on this. Uh, thank you very much. <laughs>
3: When most schools across California shut down last year, teenagers were stuck at home. And for some, that meant months alone to reflect on experiences of trauma in high school. But they didn't all keep that pain to themselves. Instead, hundreds of young people turned to social media to share their stories. KQED reporter Holly J. McDeed talked to students in Los Gatos and San Diego County about what it's been like to push for change on campus during distance learning.
8: Lynn has played the flute since she was 10 years old, and it's a big part of her identity. Music is how she stays calm.
9: Especially in high school, band was like my, the main thing in my life. Like, all my friends were in band, everything revolved around band. It was like, I don't know, definitely very important to me.
8: We're only using her middle name to protect her privacy. Lynn is a senior at Mira Mesa High School in San Diego County, and she's taking on a lot for any teenager. She's running an Instagram account called MeToo in SD, where students anonymously share experiences of harassment and assault.
9: I mean, I kind of started, I wouldn't say a trend, but the movement at my school.
8: Lynn says she was in an abusive relationship with a boy she started dating when she was a sophomore. She says he would pressure her into sending explicit photos and that he sexually assaulted her. He denies the allegations. Lynn says she wishes she had better education around what healthy relationships are supposed to look like.
9: All my friends, they tried very hard to get me to leave. I just, I didn't want to listen because, you know, I was gaslighted to the point where I thought, oh, it means, you know, he loves me or whatever, which obviously is not true. But when you're in it like that, it feels like it is true.
8: After the relationship ended in 2019, her mom found diary entries on Lynn's phone describing the abuse and reported the ex-boyfriend to the school. Lynn and her ex-boyfriend were both in band.
9: But there were times where, you know, there was a concert and I walk into the storage room, he's right there, and I just left. I couldn't be there. And in the hallways, in the library, I still had to see him.
8: The ex-boyfriend says he was never disciplined. The school district declined to comment on the case, citing privacy laws, but said that allegations of assault are taken seriously. Last summer, Lynn saw an Instagram account set up for San Diego students to share stories of sexual abuse. That made her feel comfortable sharing hers too. Her ex-boyfriend saw her post and left a carton of eggs outside her house. She says if that was the worst that could happen, there was no reason to be afraid. So
9: that's when I decide, like, okay, he does not have this power over me.
8: She went from posting her own story to running the Me Too in SD Instagram page. It has over 1,300 followers. Many of the posts include the names of alleged perpetrators, both students and teachers. The stories are posted anonymously and have not been verified. Lynn says she's received threats for running the account. If I stop, then
9: that's letting them win, and I refuse to do that, so... I just kept
8: going. A spokesperson with the San Diego Unified School District said the district has made police aware of the account and that allegations made anonymously are difficult to investigate. The spokesperson said the district has also worked with student leaders to get the word out about how to recognize and report abuse. People are still sending Lynn their stories.
9: He took away all of my firsts without considering my consent.
4: I dropped out of band the following year because I just felt like no one was on my side. I felt bad, and I didn't tell him to stop because I was scared that he would be mad at me.
8: Occasionally, she takes breaks from reading the post for the sake of her own mental health. There are dozens of accounts like Me Too in SD throughout California, including one for students in the affluent Silicon Valley town of Los Gatos.
9: From the outside, LG is idyllic. Perfect teens and perfect clothes from perfect families. And don't forget the money. But like most seemingly perfect things, you just can't see the cracks.
8: Yet. That's from a film made by a Los Gatos high school senior about the Me Too campaign happening at her school.
9: The post read, I'm not sharing this post for sympathy, but to be heard. Earlier this year, on February 8th, I was raped.
8: That post inspired other students to share their stories and eventually set up their own Instagram account. Since then, more than 100 students and alums have shared their experiences with harassment and assault.
4: The entire senior class, guys and girls, made chants with my name, slut-shaming me. And in that moment, I truly wanted to be dead.
9: I didn't want to tell my friends because I was afraid they would think I was making the whole thing up.
4: Believe it or not, I ended up apologizing to him after that encounter. We always find a way to blame ourselves.
8: In response to the wave of stories online, Los Gatos High School students held a rally on the football field last July.
10: But I believe words have power, and if saying this out loud gives others reason to as well, then I
8: will. That's Abby My Berry. Abby. She graduated from Los Gatos High School in 2018. She's one of the organizers of a new advocacy group, From Survivors for Survivors. She looked out at the football field and told everyone she was a survivor. And I'm a survivor of sexual assault, harassment, and rape. And I still believe in the power of words. Thank you. Unlike the San Diego count, Los Gatos students didn't name perpetrators online. But student organizers say there was still a lot of pushback in response to the attention they were bringing to the football team. Abby says athletes are glorified at the school, and that allowed them to get away with abuse. Last summer, Abby wrote an email calling on the school to confront its rape culture.
10: And my mom didn't want me to send it. She was like, you could get in trouble or like you could get face backlash. And I remember literally being like, I don't care, this is an issue. And I was so angry. I was just so, I was just livid. I was enraged.
8: She sent the email to all Los Gatos staff and wrote the entire community was complicit in these issues. After she sent it, one teacher and football coach replied all. He wrote, wrong. If this young lady has had something bad happen to her in the past, she should take it up with the individual who is responsible.
10: And that was just really disappointing. It's really just pointing to, like, hear teachers and advisors at the school taking sides.
8: The teacher did not respond to requests for comment. Abby worries about the students who faced backlash and lost friends for speaking out.
10: That's why I kept saying, like, please, like, if you get backlash, just send it to me because, like, you guys are still in school and I know how much reputation counts in high school and I know how much it just means jack once you get to college. And I just, I knew, like... I was really scared for them.
8: Megan Farrell is the district's Title IX coordinator. She handles complaints related to sexual abuse. She says the account has been divisive, but she says it's also made the district aware some students feel like they're not doing enough.
10: It, it, it's important, the voices of students, if they don't wanna to come to us, I think we have to understand why that is, but we also need to know what, what's being complained about in order for us to do our jobs. She says there
8: are many reasons young people are reluctant to turn to their schools to report abuse. They might not be ready to tell their parents or want to talk to the police, whose schools have an obligation to tell. There were no Title IX complaints filed against students in the district in the 2019 to 2020 school year, and only two this school year. Farrell says in response to the account, the district set up an anonymous tip line.
10: So that students would have another outlet to reach out, and um, provide any kind of information that they needed to provide to us. And anonymous reports are difficult to investigate, but if we have some information, at least we can go down a road and start looking into a matter.
8: In an email to family members, the superintendent said the district had launched an inquiry into whether the district has a culture that allows abuse to continue. The district has also hired a consultant focused on restorative justice to give community members impacted by these issues a chance to talk. Abby Berry says she knows real change will take a long time and a lot of persistence. And she says if nothing else, the online movement has at least started a conversation that wasn't happening
10: before. I know that like regardless of the fact that like we may have not been able to like change policies or like move mountains for the school, we got the town talking about it. We definitely like shocked the town. Um, but I think it like changed even in a little bit for the better.
8: Over in Mira Mesa, Lynn is still running the San Diego account. Her mom says she's proud of how much she's seen her daughter grow. We're not using her name to protect her identity.
9: I really am grateful that she found the strength to help other people. In middle school and high school, she retreated a bit. But in our household, she's always had a voice. And I think she's finding it again.
8: Lynn never returned to school in person her senior year. And a big reason for that decision is because she didn't want to confront abusers in person. She's headed to college in the fall and plans to continue to advocate for victims there.
9: So I would like to still, you know, be involved with this account and maybe transform it into something bigger or, you know, broaden, you know, the audience of this account. Um, So yeah, I definitely want to keep going with it.
8: Now she's encouraging others at her school to start a club to address sexual assault on campus. The students leading these efforts are hoping the support networks they've built online can find a way to continue in person when more students return to school. I'm Holly J. McDeed.
11: We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.
3: You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Andrew Bowen. Maureen Cavanaugh has the day off. These days, we hear a lot about cancel culture, when someone who's done or said something damaging is deplatformed, fired, or boycotted. In other words, they're held accountable. But has cancel culture gotten away from accountability, and is it being used as a weapon? San Diego Union-Tribune columnist Charles Clark says yes, and it's time to retire the phrase in a recent column. I spoke with him about his ideas on cancel culture. Here's that interview. So, okay. First, let's define what it means to cancel someone or something and how that term grew in popularity.
12: Right. So it's kind of fascinating because the term of canceling someone isn't in itself a relatively new term. I mean, really how I was familiar with it's kind of black culture and black Twitter. And usually there it was used in more of a a joking term, at least early on as kind of, I'm not going to you know, deal with this person anymore. In the time since, it has grown into something a, a, a bit different, where I think kind of we commonly think of it more as kind of a cultural boycott, kind of this way of typically using social media uh, to call out a person, usually a public figure or a business that you feel behaved in a way that was inappropriate.
3: And we know that after sufficient dragging, Black Twitter has been known to cancel someone over an offense. Uh, But then the phrase changed to cancel culture. And so did its meaning. Can you talk about that? I mean, who hijacked the term?
12: It's kind of a fascinating thing, right? I feel like you start hearing the phrase cancel culture a bit more kind of around the time of the Me Too movement. But because canceling someone became... A public way to kind of police, you know, frankly, predatory men who otherwise would not have been held accountable or haven't been held accountable, right, for decades. Now, somewhere along the way, though, in particular, conservative media kind of co-opted this phrase cancel culture to be more about, oh, the stifling of conservative speech or people infringing on free speech to you know, be the thought police, right? And, and prevent people from saying something that they disagree with. If you do, then you're excommunicated, right, from the public sphere. And really, I think that is probably part of a larger trend, right, where you've seen conservative media really loves this idea of, you know, the quote, culture war.
3: In your column, you know, as you mentioned, you say Republicans have weaponized the term to to criticize people on the left and to equate cancel culture with an attack on freedom of speech pushed by an overly sensitive, angry mob. Uh, Can you give me some examples of how the term has been weaponized recently?
12: Typically, the way that I see it used by conservatives with that negative connotation is usually in a defense of someone who's on their side, who people are trying to police. You know, Donald Trump, even during his impeachment hearings, had his attorney talk about this is cancel culture. You know, you've had Marjorie Taylor Greene go off on that and conservatives defend her, you know, including, I believe, our own rep, Daryl Issa, where, you know, the things that she's said and done to me, you know, cross the line of it's not just that it's offensive speech. It's an actual harmful speech. Um, and potentially threatening and dangerous to people.
3: Can you give me an example of when the collective outrage was warranted? When did someone or even a business need to be canceled in order to usher in change?
12: I hate to keep bringing it back to me too, but I do think that was a really salient and for the most part, pretty successful application of this
3: Cancel culture isn't the first term to sort of be hijacked. I mean, you've got now woke culture and PC police. Um, It seems like this is sort of, there's a pattern and that this is a tactic to weaponize criticism.
12: It is, It, it very much is. I mean, and I think that's the thing that kind of drives me nuts about it. You know, I originally said that I don't think cancel culture is a real thing, namely because generally it applies to public figures and often public figures who are, quote, canceled usually are able to, you know, have the impact on their professional lives be very limited, right? They're usually able to go into another gig. I think of Gina Carano, uh, who was fired from, you know, the Mandalorian series, who I think within a day had signed like a movie deal with Ben Shapiro's like Daily Mail. You know, where you actually do see it have real impact is you think of people like, say, Colin Kaepernick. Colin Kaepernick was blackballed by the NFL and still hasn't found a career. It's like he did face real professional consequences and harm because, let's be honest, predominantly white people and conservatives decided that they were pissed off. He wanted to kneel during the national anthem to call attention to racial injustice and police brutality. Um, they tried to make it about disrespecting the flag and they you know, found a receptive partner in the NFL who is a conservative leaning organization to begin with who were more than willing to partner up in excommunicating this guy. I actually think of you know, an older example is uh, the band formerly known as the Dixie Chicks, who you know, had their career at the peak of their powers professionally just ruined and thrown into shambles because during a concert in Europe, Natalie Maines, their lead singer, express, expressed her displeasure with George Bush, I believe she said something to the effect of, I'm ashamed he's a Texan. And they expressed their opposition to the invasion of Iraq.
3: What should people think about before they start
12: screaming cancel culture? (laughs) I think the question I would ask myself is, okay, what are these people really upset about? Because if you cut through some of the bad actors and the noise that like to jump into these things, there sometimes is a grain of truth, even if you feel you're being unjustly gone after. Um, On the flip side, just as a public observer, I think the question we all should be asking ourselves anytime this topic comes up, you know, people want someone, quote, canceled. I, I think you should ask, do I want them canceled because they caused real harm or do I want them canceled because they said something I don't like?
3: I've been speaking with Charles Clark, columnist at the San Diego Union Tribune. Charles, thank you so much for joining us.
12: Thanks for having me.